The Old Testament reading this morning is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 52, verse 13, and we're reading to chapter 53, verse 6. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were were not told, they will see and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The New Testament reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 25. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never be by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll." I have come to do your will, my God. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy 
through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And when these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. The Holy Gospel is written in the 19th chapter of the Gospel according to John, beginning at the 16th verse. Glory be to thee, O Lord. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven from one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said, to one another, let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened to fulfill that which was said 
They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, wife of Clophas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of vinegar, wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it was the day of preparation, and the next day was it to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who'd been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus, they found he was already dead. They did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw this, it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies that you may believe. These things happen so that the scripture will be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken, and as another scripture says, they'll look upon the one whom they've pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 35 kilograms. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen, in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Thanks be unto thee, O Lord. Lord, may your word live in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. It is a long time coming. It is anticipated. But when it happens, it is still quite a shock. That is true of the death of Jesus. John's Gospel, more than any other, 
anticipates the death of Jesus. He himself speaks of it a number of times. As we've heard in our series on the verbs of discipleship, which were on John's Gospel. Sure, Jesus did not speak of laying down his life in John 4, where he tells the Samaritan woman whom he meets at Jacob's well, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. But in all other passages we looked at over the last six Sundays, he does. In John 6 we heard Jesus not only announcing that he was the true bread that comes down from heaven, and that everyone who eats this bread will live forever, but also, quote, this bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world, unquote. And then he shocks his hearers by talking about the necessity of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, unmistakable references to his death. In John 10, we heard that the one of the marks of the good shepherd is that he lays down his life for his sheep. In John 11, we heard that although Jesus is the resurrection and the life, the very fact that he raises his friend Lazarus from back from the dead leads Caiaphas, the high priest, to give this piece of cynical real politic advice to his fellow counsellors. You do not realise it is better that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. And in doing so, unwittingly the high priest is prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, not only for that nation, but for all the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. In John 15, we read, where Jesus, who is the true vine, in whom his disciples must remain or abide, he tells them as his friends, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. And then last week, in John 12, as Jesus arrives in Jerusalem for the last time, we heard him say, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anticipate it. But when at last we come now to John 19, to that hour of the glorification of the Son of Man, it is still a shock. Verse 17, carrying his own cross, he went to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. There they crucified him. Nowadays, uh, we're used to crosses. You might be wearing one as a piece of jewellery. We see crosses on memorials, churches, and so forth. The first readers of the Gospel of John were also used to crosses. They had seen them in public places, at crossroads, and places like that, with poor wretches hanging on them in pain, gasping for breath, dying in public. Crucifixion was regarded as the worst kind of death. It was a harsh, violent, and painful public deterrent. Its purpose was to degrade and shame its victims in the most cruel kind of way. As Tom Holland, in his book, Dominion, writes, no death was more excruciating 
more contemptible than crucifixion. When those first readers heard the words, there they crucified him, they knew exactly what that meant. And the Gospel of John describes the process of the crucifixion of Jesus in five episodes, each episode explaining what is going on. They're in your notes. One, he is, is, he, is, he, he is king. Two, his clothes. Three, those left behind. Four, the thirsty end. Five, he really is dead. This morning, let me take you through each of them briefly. He is king. Because crucifixion was a terrible warning to others, the Romans always set up a titulus, that is a placard, on which the crimes of the condemned person were written as a warning. Now, the charge that the temple hierarchy had used to secure Jesus' condemnation by the Roman procurator Pilate was that Jesus had claimed to be the king of the Jews. Now, to us that may sound innocent or crazy and no big deal. But in those days, if it was true he'd made that claim, it would have been an act of sedition and rebellion in opposition to Roman imperial power and enough to get you crucified. Although, as the account in chapter 18 and 19 makes clear, Pilate was never really convinced that Jesus was a seditious threat, yet he gave in and sent Jesus to be crucified. At the same time, in a somewhat passive-aggressive way, Pilate takes revenge on the accused of Jesus by taking the charge against Jesus a little too literally for them. On the titulus affected, fixed to Jesus' cross, Pilate had these words written, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. By the way, you can see what a multicultural, multilingual world it was in that the Gospel tells us it was written in three languages. Aramaic, Latin, Greek. Now, this is not what the temple hierarchy wanted at all. They complained to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but this man claimed to be King of the Jews. That is, make it clear that this man who made the claim He's now dying because it was a criminal lie. Pilate, no doubt, sick of the whole thing. We'll have none of it. He dismisses them. What I have written, I have written. Which I believe in Latin makes an equally good aphorism. Quod scripsi, scripsi. Yet, unwittingly, Pilate has written an astounding truth. Although no one witnessing that scene at the time would have thought it for a second, this is the moment of Jesus' enthronement. As he'd said obliquely when he announced his hour back in John 12, verse 31, now is the time for the judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, and I, when I am lifted up, from the earth will draw all people to myself. Is he king? Affirmative. Secondly, his clothes. Verse 23. When the disciples crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, divided him to four squares, one for each of them with the undergarment remaining. Think about it. Who does not even need his own clothes? 
Romans crucified victims naked. It was a sign of their utter ruin and humiliation. So with Jesus. However, John's Gospel notes one detail. Unlike the rest of Jesus' clothing, which the soldiers presumably either divided or tore up into four parts, they notice that the undergarment, robe, is woven in one piece, rather than having seams. So instead of tearing it, the soldiers toss for it. John's Gospel sees a significance in this seemingly trivial event. Verse 24, this happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lot for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. The scripture is Psalm 22, verse 18 in our, in our counting. Psalm 22 is a cry of lament which begins with the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? And it includes the words in verse 16, Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierced my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Although the psalm also has later on, I will declare, this address to God, the Lord, I'll declare your name to my people. In the assembly I will praise you. For he has not despised nor scorned the suffering of the afflicted one, nor has he hidden his face from him, but hastened, listen to his cry for help. So that's two, his clothes. Three, those left behind. With incredible restraint about how they must have been feeling, John's Gospel simply reports on four women standing near the cross. There's Jesus' mother, who interestingly is never named in John's Gospel. Her sister, also not named here, that is Jesus' aunt, plus Mary, the wife of Clophas, plus Mary Magdalene. And there's at least one of Jesus' disciples there as well. This disciple is also never named in John's Gospel, but typically called as here, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Although he's anonymous, he's the most significant in the Gospel, as he is the witness of Jesus' words and actions which make up the Gospel of John. For example, at the end we read, this is chapter 21, 24, this is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know his testimony is true. And we'll meet his testimony in just a moment. Back to John 19. Seeing them, Jesus commits his mother to the care of this disciple. Woman, here is your son. And she to the disciple, here is your mother. And we're told that from that time on, this disciple took her into his home, that is, took care of her. What is the significance of this reframing of his mother's son and his friend's mother? Yes, it's care for those he loves. Is it also in some sense that this disciple will stand in for Jesus, though not replace him, who nonetheless will remain the way, the truth and the life? That's number three, those left behind. And now four, the thirsty end. We come to the climax of John Gospel's account of the crucifixion. 
two moments when Jesus knows that everything, quote, had now been finished. The word that's used here, telestai, has the sense of fulfillment, reaching a goal. Everything is now at the point of completion, of achievement, when Jesus knows that. First, he calls out, I am thirsty. And we read the soldiers offer him some wine vinegar on a sponge. John's Gospel said this is to fulfill Scripture without specifying which it is. Is it possibly Psalm 69, verse 20 and 21? I quote, Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Whichever it is, we cannot escape the significance of Jesus' thirst. He was the one who said to the woman at the well, back in chapter 4, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He's the one who said also to that woman, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water wellowing up into eternal life. Now, he says, I'm thirsty. Is it too much to see that he who brings the water of life himself must go through the thirst of death? And then, secondly, the final utterance and the final act when he received the drink, Jesus says, said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished, accomplished, completed, and he dies. The bread from heaven has given his flesh for the life of the world. The good shepherd has laid down his life for the sheep. The resurrection, the life, has died for the nation, and not only the nation, but for all the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. With no greater love than this, he's laid down his life for his friends. The kernel of wheat has fallen into the ground and died, that it may produce many seeds. It is finished. Now, there have been many, many attempts to explain what great thing happened here. Many very thoughtful, illuminating and powerful explanations. But this morning, I want us to hear what the Gospel of John says and leave it at that. Except to add that after all the efforts of theology and scripture studies to explain it all, when all the work is done, there'll still be a great mystery remaining about the meaning of the death of Jesus and what it achieved and why. I'm sure that Charles Wesley got it right when he wrote in his hymn, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies, 
Who can explore his strange design? In vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, wouldst die for me? The thirsty end, it must be love. Which leads us finally to number five. Really, he really is dead. Because evening was falling by this time and the next day is a great Sabbath, about to begin, as it does at, at, at uh, twilight. Jewish sensibilities dictated that the bodies not be left on the crosses, as would be normal, by the way, for crucifixions. So the soldiers break the legs of the crucified victims to speed up death so the corpses can be removed in time. When they come to Jesus, he's dead already. So they do not break his legs. Instead, we read verse 34, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water, unquote. Blood and water are significant medically, although when the exact details are unclear. It sounds like it's from the pericardium sac, fluid around the heart. Whatever it is, it's a sure sign that death is real. Significantly, at this moment in the Gospel of John, there's a note to the reader about the veracity of this particular event. Verse 35. The man who saw this has given his testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows he tells the truth, and he testifies that you may believe. This almost certainly is a reference to the disciple we met before, called the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was there. He saw all this and testifies to it. Scholars struggle to be sure what exact point about this water and blood is for the significance of belief, that you may believe. Perhaps it's no more difficult than the reality of death, that you may believe the, the reality of the death of him who is the word made flesh, which is so hard to believe. As you may know, for example, in the Quran, it is denied this is possible. There it says, quote, they did not slay him, neither crucified him, only a likeness that was shown them. No, he was there, he saw it, he witnessed. And the Gospel of John also sees a further significance in this spearing of Jesus. Verse 36, these things happen so the scripture might be fulfilled. None of his bones will be broken. That's Exodus 12, 46, about the Passover lamb. Sacrifice, as it were, for the redemption of Israel. There's an insight. The other's less obvious. Zechariah 12.10, about Jerusalem mourning for the one they've abused when the Lord vindicates him, verse 37. And as another scripture says, they look upon the one whom they've pierced. And so after the five episodes, is he king, his clothes, those he leaves behind, the thirsty end, he is really dead. The narrative moves to the concluding burial of Jesus. A secret follower of Jesus, Joseph Arimathea, gets permission from an obviously still uneasy pilot to take the corpse. And instead of the normal practice of throwing the crucified dead into an unmarked common grave, he places it in a new tomb in a nearby garden. Back then, they had a system of double burial. First, the body was tightly wrapped up and laid on a bench in a niche, in a, in a tomb, a cave, cut out. This was the primary burial. 
Then a year later, when the flesh had decayed, there was a second burial of the bones in an ossuary or limestone chest. That's exactly what would have happened with Jesus. That is what everybody expected to happen with Jesus. Come back on Sunday to hear what actually happened.